Production support for Earth Eats comes from Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. I've found that making smaller loaves is better, so they're little guys. They look like little animals when they get done. This week on our show, we visit a backyard brick oven and talk with Keith Romaine and Amy Roche about their neighborhood pop-up bakery. And we head over to Cardinal Spirits for a fall cocktail recipe featuring apples. That's all just ahead. Let's start with Renee Reed and the news. Hi, Renee. Hello, Kate. A group of black farmers say Monsanto's nearly $11 billion settlement of Roundup-related lawsuits earlier this summer wasn't enough. As Corinne Ruff reports for Harvest Public Media, a lawsuit filed last week in a Missouri federal court calls for the ag giant owned by Bayer to stop selling the weed killer. Black farmers matter. Attorneys, farmers, and activists gathered outside Bayer's Creefcore office to voice their support for a lawsuit that urges more relief for black farmers who used Roundup. St. Louis County NAACP President John Bowman says it's a social justice issue. Black farmers have been trapped into using a dangerous product, and they are paying for it with their economic freedom, their health, and in some cases, their lives. Earlier this summer, Bayer agreed to settle about 100,000 lawsuits claiming Roundup caused people cancer. The company said in a statement, claims that black farmers were treated differently in that process are false. It also said the latest lawsuit has no basis and that its products are safe. I'm Corinne Ruff. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue said in a recent letter to lawmakers that the USDA would end a school meal waiver program by September 30th. On August 31st, the agency abruptly changed its stance, announcing that those measures would extend through the end of the school year in December. Since schools closed in March, the school meal waivers have made it easier for parents to pick up free meals, extending the service to children who are not of school age and expanding the income levels needed to qualify. The moves also allow coordination with local community organizations to make meal pickups easier for families who do not live close to a school. In the early days of the pandemic, the agency dragged its feet amid calls to extend the benefits, with hundreds of anti-hunger and child advocacy groups pushing for the White House to extend benefits that had been authorized in the COVID-19 Child Nutrition Response Act through September 30th. In the August 20 letter, responding to pressure for extensions, Purdue claimed that the emergency law would not allow the agency to keep the flexibility measures in place. But amid a growing outcry, a little more than a week later on August 31st, the agency suddenly pivoted, announcing the waivers would be available through the end of the year. Thanks to Corinne Ruff and Chad Bouchard for those stories. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed.
So I said, oh, okay, well, I'll just make a wood-fired bread oven in the backyard. Couldn't be that hard. When Keith Romaine dreamed of building a brick oven in his backyard almost seven years ago, he was picturing neighborhood gatherings and festive evenings featuring hot pizzas, steamy loaves of fresh-baked bread, and bottles of wine and cold sparkling water passed across tables. In other words, he wasn't picturing life in a global pandemic. But now that his wood-fired brick oven is finished and his backyard has been transformed into a lovely garden piazza, he's finally ready to start baking bread and sharing it with his community. He and a friend have recently started a pop-up bake sale on Friday evenings in Bloomington, Indiana. I paid a visit to Keith's place, which is just a few blocks away from my house. Keith's house is nestled in a shady, almost wooded, magical-looking alley. His yard is filled with trees and vines and lush ground cover and this lovely front porch. He's got kind of a gnarled and twisted, beautiful old red bud in the front. And then as you go down this alley, it's like you enter a, a microclimate. The temperature drops like 10 degrees. So it's a very secluded feeling, kind of tucked away. And Keith pays a lot of attention to aesthetics. He's an artist and he has created an oasis here in McDowell Gardens neighborhood. He has a lovely patio space that he has designed and built with stone walls and edible garden beds and climbing flowers. It's really a gorgeous space. He refers to it as the piazza, complete with a gurgling fountain in the center surrounded by feathery plants. I stopped by in the late morning when Keith was just getting the fire started. Just to um, build a good fire and that Maybe obvious, but newspaper and paper wadded up, and then have little twigs. More little guys. These are just things that are left over from my yard honeysuckle. So the goal is to keep building it up and building up until it's a basically a, a roaring fire, and the inside of the oven will get up to around. 700, 750. Do you want to use wood that burns hot and fast? Do you have any kind of dampers or louvers or anything like that? Nope, it just goes straight up. It's not like a regular fireplace that has the chimney right above the fire. Uh-huh. When it's sealed off with the bread in it, it needs to be completely airtight, allowing steam to build up. Okay, so having a chimney right inside of the chamber wouldn't really work. Yeah, that's the reason why regular home ovens don't work, because they let air in and out. By don't work, Keith means you can't get that crusty bake with full oven spring very easily on your home-baked bread, in part because home ovens usually don't get hot enough, and also because they don't trap steam as well as a brick oven like his does. The fire is going good now. Um, And I'll just keep building the fire for the next five hours. I'm going to keep building it. This is called a black oven. It's an oven where you build the fire inside the chamber where the bread is going to be. And the oven is built so that it has very thick 
masonry walls. First with fire brick that's closest to the fire and then on top of that is quite a lot of concrete and then on top of that is vermiculite uh, insulation to hold the heat in. So you're heating up the interior space and those bricks and they're uh, they're holding that heat yes. throughout the baking process. Mm -hmm. Exactly. How that works is, is that I get the oven heated up and then I pull out all of the ashes and swab it out with the towel and it'll be wet. So then it'll be about 700 degrees. And I put in the first batch of about 16 loaves and I've found that making smaller loaves is better because when you have a really hot oven, it's too hot to cook all the way through if the loaves are big. So they're little guys. They look like little animals when they get done. They're cute. What Keith means by too hot to cook all the way through is that the outside of the bread might get too crispy or even burnt before the interior has a chance to fully bake. So for now, he's sticking with smaller loaves. We'll return to Keith's brick oven later in the show for bread baking and a neighborhood pop-up bake sale. a hop, skip, and a jump away from Keith Romaine's brick oven piazza is Cardinal Spirits Distillery. Though it's been a rough summer for restaurants and bars, Cardinal Spirits has rolled with the punches. They've been making and distributing hand sanitizer and offering online ordering and carryout for their handcrafted spirits, canned cocktails, and meals from their restaurant. Last fall, I visited with guest bartender Scott Lowe, who showed me how to make an apple-centric cocktail. And I'm the Indiana sales manager for Cardinal Spirits. But I've been a bartender for, well, I've been in the business for about 30 years. And I have been a bartender most recently in the Indianapolis area for about uh, 18 years. We're going to make a fall-inspired cocktail. And um, that's going to uh, utilize our uh, Cardinal Standard Dry Gin, along with some uh, Indiana apple cider and some uh, locally sourced honey from um, the owner's apiary up in Fort Wayne area that I infused with cinnamon sticks and a little bit of fresh lime juice. Much of what I do focuses on seasonality, whether it be fall, winter, spring, summer, and utilizing those fruits or vegetables or herbs that kind of go along with that season. So certainly for, for fall, apples. I think apples, I love apples. And the apple cider that I'm using is actually from a uh, orchard from Northern Indiana and that's actually in my hometown of Laporte, Indiana. So I'm kind of, you know, utilizing some local ingredients that are kind of near to my, to my heart. We're going to start with two ounces of our Cardinal Standard Dry Gin, which is a juniper forward traditional dry style gin with a ton of citrus. So we add juniper berries, coriander, uh, orange zest, lemon zest in, some, in a basket. It's a, a botanical basket that we have on one of the columns in our still. It's on the very last column, and then the liquid vapor passes over the botanical and actually infuses into make it a gin. So it's a very clean, dry gin. 
and we're going to use two ounces of that. And I'm going to put this in a shaker tin. And then next, I will add one ounce of Indiana apple cider, Garwood's Orchards, Laporte, Indiana. I will then add three quarters of an ounce of lime juice. And then I will add the cinnamon infused cardinal honey from our owner's farm up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then I will take that and add some ice to the tin. At first I thought you said a shaker tin, but then I realized you were saying tin. Shaker tin, yes. Yes, shaker tin, that's uh, shaker tin is uh, one of the most important parts of a bartender's uh, arsenal as far as equipment is concerned or tools. So yes, this, this basically, for any shaken cocktail used with citrus, allows the proper dilution factor and keeps the drink nice and cold. And it's a stainless steel, so it's easy to clean and it doesn't take on. If you're making several different type cocktails with, with different ingredients, it doesn't hold on to those ingredients once they've been poured out. Cap that, and I'll give it a shake for about 20 seconds. We want a dilution of about 20%, so that kind of infuses the ice and makes it a nice cold drink, and it doesn't make it too boozy. And you know it's ready when the sides of the shaker tin are ice cold to the touch. And so I'll take my Hawthorne strainer, and I'll put it over the top of the shaker tin, and then I'll take my double strainer, which is a fine mesh sieve, that was gonna extract all of the shards of ice so it doesn't continue to dilute. And then I'll be adding some ice to the glass. So you're removing the ice and then you're adding the ice. Correct. Yes. So you're removing the ice just because those, the, the, the fine ice, you can see this in your shaker tin when you're looking at it, um, you see these fine, fine little crystals of ice. If those remain in the drink, they dissipate very quickly, so it's just going to water down your drink. That larger cubes are going to take longer to, to dilute, so. And you want to keep the drink cold. And then I'm just going to garnish it with a nice, thin slice of an Indiana apple. I'm just going to set that right on top here. There you are. Oh, that's gorgeous. That the apple a day cocktail. That's great. It's so simple. My favorite cocktails are the, are the simplest to make. As long as you're using really good quality ingredients and fresh juices, then you really don't need a whole lot of ingredients total. I mean, just keep it simple, make it nice and, and easy for everybody to kind of understand and be very approachable. Uh, do you mind if I taste it? Sure. <laughs> yeah, that is really simple. It's clean. It's crisp like like an apple mm -hmm. like nice yeah. crisp and that's and it also allows the spirit to still have to be present you don't want to there's a reason why you're using a really good gin you want to be able to taste that gin and the components of that gin as well yeah i like the honey the honey in there is nice it goes really good with the apple the honey and the cinnamon are very subtle like they're just adding a warmth but it's not like you're going cinnamon you know right. it, it's just a subtle it's warmth over. it's not taking over the cocktail yeah and that's again that's the balance part of the factor of the, of the cocktail oh that's wonderful thank you find the recipe for scott lowe's apple a day cocktail featuring cardinal spirits gin at eartheats.org Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. 
sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com and Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. We're back with Keith Romaine and his wood-fired brick oven in his backyard piazza. He's been stoking the fire and heating the oven for more than five hours now, and he's already put the first batch of bread loaves into the oven. While they bake, he sets up his makeshift cooling rack on the redwood plank table in front of the stove. These are not special bread boards. They're two by fours that have been ripped the cooling rack consists of thin strips of wood arranged about four inches apart across one-third of the table. It works. Because they need to breathe a little bit. If they don't, the bottoms get all soggy. So what kind of bread is this? I'm seeing a lot of seeds. It's a sourdough. It's all organic. A whole wheat flour, all-purpose flour, and bread flour. And then it has chia seeds and flax seeds in it. And those aren't just for nutrition, but they make the bread. Um, one of the things that I love about bread, when it's really yummy to me, is, is that it's almost, it melts in your mouth on the inside, and then it's lightly crispy on the outside, as opposed to being dry on the inside. I'm not a fan of that kind of bread anymore. They describe it, bread people, as pudding like but it's not it's cooked and it's rises and it can cut like slices but it's, so it's not like gooey the other thing about this kind of bread is is that it lasts for about five days as opposed to regular sourdough by the time the next day comes it's already no it's day old i just put it in and, and you saw i just closed it but it but i should check it okay because it's hot in there. It was time to check on the first batch of bread in the oven. Oh, wow. Those definitely got their oven spring, didn't they? They did, <laughs> and it's so amazing. Once the loaves are out, Keith turns to the dough, resting in linen-lined baskets on the other two-thirds of the table. He flowers the long-handled paddle-shaped metal peel and turns a dough ball onto it. And um, what I do with these loaves, these are about two pounds. And so I cut them into four and then stick the... I stretch them a little bit, but mostly I don't do too much to them because they, they don't need it. Uh -huh. They just grow in the oven. Okay. 
in their own little funny shapes. He quickly slides the loaves into the back of the oven and prepares three more rounds for a total of 16 loaves per batch. Once the loaves are inside, he fits the thick metal door over the oven's entrance and notes the time. These are really beautiful. I like them that they're not, they're not all exactly the same. What's interesting is that I'm a, a fiber artist and when I was in graduate school, I would make things that looked kind of like this. I had no idea that I was <laughs> getting ready to make bread. You mean that looked like the finished loaves? Yeah. There. I asked Keith about the backstory to his wood-fired brick oven. So about 10 or 15 years ago, I started having dinner parties at my house. And then I went to Italy and discovered that there was better bread in some places of the world than there is in Bloomington. So I said, oh, okay, well, I'll just make a wood-fired bread oven in the backyard. Couldn't be that hard. So I planned it and thought about it and dreamed about it and read lots of micro bakery success stories. And with a group of people, we created a Kickstarter campaign. They raised around $8,000. 3000 of that came from Keith himself. But the project ended up being much more involved than they had anticipated, as projects often are. The total cost was closer to $20,000. And it took nearly seven years to complete. I needed a way to get from the kitchen to the oven. And there, it was a 10-foot drop. Built stairs, built a porch. And he built the piazza, which required some earthwork, and the building of stone walls and garden beds, in addition to the oven itself and a roof to cover the brick oven and the workspace in front of it. Wow. So the vision wasn't just to make bread for yourself. You had a larger... It was. It was, to, it was a community building. Bread traditionally is something to break bread together is an old, very old um, saying of people coming together. I'm going to check this okay. bread. The last of the bread is out of the oven, and before too long, his friend Amy has arrived, and they're getting ready for the pop-up bake sale. Amy Roche is Keith's friend, neighbor, and a baker herself. She bakes part-time at Two Sticks Bakery, and in her own kitchen, pies are her specialty. I have to mark people off when they've purchased. I'm the keeper tracker. Together with Keith, they've started a Friday night pop-up bake sale. Yeah, I'm taking pre-orders. I've got a list of people that I started with, people I know who are interested in local seasonal food, and then word of mouth from there. And we've been, yeah, selling out in pre-orders. All that we can kind of do in a day. And so far, the menu is simple. Three things. A mini sourdough, like crusty, rustic sourdough, seeded loaf of bread from Keith, and a sweet and savory galette, seasonal. So the flavor is based on what I can get my hands on that week. And you've been doing it for four weeks? Yes. 
just adjusting along the way, you know, with what, what works for us and for customers. And we haven't had to adjust that much. It's been going well. Amy and Keith are still working out temperatures and timing with baking the galettes in the brick oven. On this day, Amy slides two of her savory her tomato and cheese galettes into the brick oven for a trial. Local eggplant yes. sauteed with olive oil and garlic. And there's local organic mozzarella. That's this is been, very hot. Okay, tossed in smoked paprika, some heirloom tomatoes. Oh, and, and then they're wrapped in a, in a pie dough. They're wrapped in, yeah, a pie dough that has organic butter and local eggs in it. They sprinkled a little Pecorino Romano on top because I love Pecorino Romano. Yeah. When Keith pulls out Amy's tarts, the tomato filling is bubbling like hot lava, and the aroma penetrates even the thickest face covering. Customers arrived for pickup in a steady stream throughout the hour. Everyone wore face masks, and it was easy to maintain a safe distance on the piazza. A cool summer shower sent the bakers under the brick oven's porch for the remainder of the sale. And Keith and Amy basked in the warmth radiating from the brick oven and the joy of sharing their creations with friends and neighbors. Oh my God, Keith, this is beautiful. Thank you so much, folks. Thank you. Visit our website for photos of Keith Romaine's backyard wood-fired brick oven, his adorable loaves of sourdough, and Amy Roche's stunning seasonal galettes. EarthEats.org is the place to go. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find us at EarthEats. That's all we have time for today. I'm Kate Young. Thank you for listening to EarthEats. Stay nourished, stay safe. The EarthEats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Keith Romaine, 
Scott Lowe, and Amy Roche. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com. Thank you.